0: We think of Uncanny as decidedly queer. We think of Uncanny as often bittersweet, very engaged emotionally. And we think of Uncanny as a market that, that is focused on ways to make things better, large and small.
1: Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Fly to the future, Space Unicorns. I'm Brandon. I'm Sean. And on today's show, we are joined by two fantastic people from Uncanny Magazine. The first is Lynn M. Thomas, editor in chief of the magazine. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back.
1: And the second is Chimidum Ohebu, the managing editor and poetry editor of the magazine. Welcome. Thank you. First time here and I'm very excited. Rad. So... Uh, We are here to talk about Uncanny Magazine's eighth year, which is upcoming. I I have so many feelings about this, this is uh, (laughs) really rad. The Kickstarter has, as of recording, just begun. And has just met its initial goal, for which we are very, very glad. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. And then some. (laughs) then
1: some, yes. And um, there are uh, many more stretch goals to go, and I hope that you meet all of them. But uh, we're here to just uh, chat a little bit about uh, how you've gotten to this point and uh, where you plan to go from here in Year 8. Wow, what an
2: open-ended statement. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean I, I anticipate that in an hour we're going to learn a great deal and we're gonna like everything that we learn. So the question is very open ended.
2: Well we should say that I if I recall correctly, we did have Uncanny when it with Lynn and Michael the first year yes. that Uncanny opened. You had and the scoop. Had- we had the. Skiff- <laughs> we
0: announced the beginning of. We announced the first attempt to do a Kickstarter for Uncanny Magazine on the Skiffy and Fanty show,
2: which tells you everything about how great this show is. So.
0: Clearly,
1: <laughs> yeah, you had the inside line on. We did. Future. He, yeah, we were all holding the microphone
0: in a hotel room at a convention. I remember That's this very right. clearly.
2: Uh, that was right. It was, and I think that would be the the big thing to start with because. It's been 8 years. This is this is year 8 coming up. Mm-hmm. That's a long long time yes. to be running a magazine.
0: <laughs> yes it is.
2: <laughs> and so I guess the big question is what is, what's is the big lesson that you think you've learned for running a
0: magazine this long. So Oh, goodness. Um, I think that there, there are a couple of major lessons. I mean, some of them seem like they should be obvious, but they aren't obvious until you're in the middle of doing it. So one of the things that I think was a major lesson that is obvious is it's a marathon, not a sprint. It, because magazines are periodicals and they have to come out on a consistent schedule, it's not a good idea to structure your work as though you are trying to sprint through things and get it done as quickly as possible, and then you're done. Because you won't be done, you have to then move on to the next thing. And if you have a cycle of doing nothing but sprinting, you end up a little burnt out crisp nub of a person before you've (laughs) even made it through your first year. Ask me how I know. So (laughs) one of the things that we learned that was very important for us was pacing and scheduling and organization. So a lot of what has served us well with Uncanny um, has been being really rigid about calendars and making sure that we plan very well ahead and that we have plan B and plan C and plan D because the other thing that is perpetually true with any kind of ongoing endeavor is that people drop out, things happen, timelines change, stuff doesn't come through, and you have to find a way to work around that and to work through it. So um that's the other really big lesson is just being prepared. And, you know, as now essentially the crew chief um, with Michael of this crew, uh, the other thing is hiring great people and you know, training them as well as you can and trusting them to do their jobs and giving them the resources they need. Um, and being open to hearing feedback and to finding ways to improve your processes wherever that's possible. Because ultimately that kind of connectedness with the people that are part of your crew makes for a better magazine for everybody and a better experience for everybody. So those are some of the lessons. at the start.
2: <laughs> well, well, Jimmy, I- I'm curious from your perspective, because you you've obviously not been there for all eight years, you've been there for a little bit now. Uh, and I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the things that you've kind of picked up working with Uncanny?
3: I think definitely, there's a strong sense of like, oh, this is like, more than just a magazine it's also a community that has been something that you know from the outside going in you kind of have a sense of because you're like oh we're all coming together to read these stories and the shared ones that we really love to share poems and art and stuff like that but when you go in it's like oh no community building is actually like a very specific aspect of the just the magazine business in general i would venture to say but also uncanny specifically Uh, and you really see that with the kickstarter like it's always nice every year to see how much and not just for our Kickstarter but like (laughs) magazines do tend to rally around each other like I know like a a lot of Kickstarters tend to happen at the same time just because there's only so many months in a year Um, (laughs) so people are really supportive of us and of each other and so giving that energy back has been
1: something really interesting to see Yeah, I kind of want to speak immediately to that community thing, because, I mean, at least I've kind of noticed that very recently there is, there are only so many magazines, obviously. And in a way, you're all kind of uh, competing for stories, competing for resources, etc. But especially in SFF, I think that it's really comforting to know that the, the magazine market here is very willing to consider itself... Community among itself, and consider like the staff of uh, multiple magazines and the work that exists in the publication space in general, all part of the same uh, ecosystem, and therefore, like we are not at competition. We are actually like a-, a shared community. And how does it feel? I think the question that I have is how does it feel to be a part of the community of short SFF uh, both in the, the sense of running a magazine alongside other magazines that are actually think that it's really rad whenever their uh, colleagues uh, win an award or when one of their colleagues' stories wins an award but also to be a part of fostering a large-scale community of writers of short SFF who also think very highly of each other.
0: One of the things that Became very clear to us early on when we decided to start Uncanny, because of course Michael and I had worked for Apex Magazine previous to deciding that we wanted to open our own market, and we would not have been as successful as we were if it weren't for the support of other markets in the science fiction short fiction community. I mean, I very specifically, I'm I'm very clear about John Joseph Adams and Christy Yant from Lightspeed, who not only were, you know, complete cheerleaders and boosters and encouraging the entire way when we, you know, when we had lunch with them at a convention and said, hey, we're thinking about doing this. But it it wasn't just moral support. John Joseph Adams, like, sat down with me and walked me through the this is how you make ebook software like you know there was significant hand holding that went on here <laughs> to help us be successful and you know i'm i still to this day i'm very grateful for that and i understand that you know as part of this community it's also part of my responsibility to provide that help when i can as well so you know one of the things that happens to many Publisher editors periodically is that we'll get emails from folks who are thinking about starting a short fiction market asking us lots of questions. And I do my best to answer those questions as honestly as I can and as gracefully as I can to give folks the information that they need to do well and to specifically point to the common pitfalls. Um, And, you know, sometimes it's very basic things like make sure you keep the money separate. Make sure that you have a lawyer look at the contracts, you know, get an accountant. Don't forget you'll have to pay self-employment taxes if you're in the United States and you're doing this freelance. Like a lot of it's very nuts and bolts stuff that's applicable to any small business. But many folks starting in short fiction as editors are thinking much more about the art and craft part of it and less about the business part of it. Um, we were lucky because John and Christy helped sort of lead us by the nose through the business part because we had already done the art part first while working for Apex. So we had sort of a feel for that. I really enjoy the fact that there is this entire community of short fiction writers uh, who are all supporting each other and rooting for each other and who are helping each other. And, you know, again, we do what we can to support them. It's always a little bit weird because navigating the relationship between writers and editors is is going to be a little bit fraught, right? There's... There's challenges there because we say no to people and nobody likes being told no. You know, nobody enjoys being rejected and we understand that. And we try to be as humane about it as possible. You know, when you're putting together a Kickstarter, you invite a lot of people and not all of them are able to participate when, you know, when you're using the model that we use that involves a subset of solicited folks. You know, we end up asking more folks than actually end up saying, yes, that's how the numbers work. And that's fine. But one of the things I think that is important is that um you know we like we have lots of dear friends who are writers in the industry in addition to our editor colleagues and friends and like we've rejected some of our very dearest friends we've rejected their work as well as the work of people we don't know it's really from our perspective not personal in the sense of the thing that is personal to us is when we fall in love with a story and when we find something that sings to us that we want to bring to the world in its best possible form. That's the thing that every editor lives for is being that is being the person who reads that story and says, yes, this, I want the world to read this. This is representative of what I think we do. And I can't wait to put this out there. That's what we all live for. The good news is every editor has different taste. So what we think of as this perfect, this is such an uncanny story, could very easily be rejected by other markets because it's not to their taste. And it has nothing to do with the quality of the story. It has to do with not their taste. The challenge, of course, is volume. It's a lot of stories that come aclo- across the transom when we're open. We we get on average 2,500 stories during the period that we're open. Out of that group of stories, we publish between 10 and 15. Because we have this model where we solicit and we get stuff through the slush and we've had you know wonderful stories come through the slush that we have purchased many of which have been award winners or award finalists they came through the slush jordan taylor's story came through the slush that just got nominated for british fantasy award ray carson's story came through the slush that was was just up for awards and is up for hugo like a lot of our stuff comes through the slush but it's it's always a back and forth and a negotiation to a certain extent, because my taste is not the same as John De- Joseph Adams taste or Neil Clark's taste or the, the taste of the editors at FIA. It's going to be different because we're different people and we have different perspectives and different goals. And that's OK. You know, I don't have the same taste as Sheila Williams, but we often publish different stories by the same writers because they are writing different things for us. My favorite example of this is when we were doing our first Kickstarter, Sarah Pinsker had agreed to be one of our solicited authors. And she sent us this story and she's like, I think this is an uncanny story. And we're like, Sarah, we're not even like sure this is going to go forward yet. Like we weren't even funded at that point. And she's like, no, this is an uncanny story. And we're like, how do you know? She's like, I don't know. I just know this is an uncanny story. We were like, we haven't started editing yet. We don't know what an uncanny story is. We haven't made selections yet. But she knew that the one she sent us was an uncanny story. And we did buy it. And it was an uncanny story. Um, But a lot of it is that writers who read what we do and get a feel for our vibe, I think that they then, most writers write a lot of stories and they, they often experiment with different kinds of stories and different approaches to storytelling, which is great. It's one of the ways that you grow your craft. and it's interesting to me because the stuff that we tend to get does fit our remit in the sense of we tend to get the stories that are full of feels which is very much our brand Um, we often get stories that are um, experimental either in form or in approach or in linguistic styling where you know that might not appeal to editors who are looking for something slightly more traditional or in a different vein Um, and we don't tend to get a lot of stories that are sort of really hardcore world-building science fiction-y stuff because that's not what we do as much. So I think that writers, to a certain extent, they may not tailor their story directly to us, but they tend to send us the stories that they think will fit what we do based on their observations of what we're already doing.
2: I'm glad that a lot of your answer had to do with fiction, because obviously you also publish poetry, and I'm totally stealing the opportunity from Brandon, <laughs> who is the poetry person of this podcast, to turn this over to Chimmy to on, on your approach to, because you're the, the poetry editor, and I was curious about your approach to, to poetry, what you kind of look for, what makes an uncanny poem.
3: Sure. I mean, to start with, I've only been the poetry editor since I think January, officially.
2: Yeah, but 2021 is 47 years long, so. It has been
3: 47 years, so (laughs) to extend that answer, and and this is always funny to me, because as someone who also, like, is a writer of poetry and submits poetry to markets, it's always hilarious to like read what they're looking for and it's like give us poems that tell us that i am your father luke tell us poems that are like it gets really dramatic and specific so i'm gonna try i, I don't know if i should give an answer like that or a different one but um <laughs> i meet in the middle yeah that could be kind of fun uh i i don't know i enjoy poems typically when i'm reading either for fun or for work uh i like a poem that surprises me and this can be like linguistically speaking or in terms of the form uh or in terms of like the way it approaches the subject matter there's always got to be a little turn to it even if the turn is inherent to the poem itself so it's not necessarily like a big third act so to speak twist of a poem but it can be that the subject is approached at a really oblique interesting angle. As I found with selecting the poems this year. I like it when I'm not necessarily sure where the poem's going to go from the start. Sometimes like a poem can start one really interesting way and then shift to a completely different interesting mode and I'm like, "Oh, okay, like there's a lot going on here." Uh if I'm able to like english major my way through it which is to say if it gives me a lot of stuff to kind of get my teeth in and analyze then i'm having a good time but that's not to say necessarily like serious poems over frivolous poems frivolous being you know a very subjunct subjective term yeah i think poems that are just like we've published uh in, in my time as poetry editor um, we've had like some more strictly formal poems like sonnets, which is really cool. And then also there's free verse, which is also fun and prose poems. I love prose poems. I saw a thing like a few months ago that was like, prose poems are dead. And I was like, Oh, I don't think so. I feel like if you can take something that's allegedly dead, um, which is to say dead for white people and then put your own little twist on it, then I'm going to have a good time with it. Like. <laughs> I I don't know. Poetry is just so, there's a lot to it. How do I explain this without putting it into a poem, which I cannot put on the spot. So I'm not gonna, (laughs) but I mean, read the poetry archives of uncanny and you will probably see what you, what I mean.
0: Well, and, and in fairness, to talk a little bit about the poetry archives um, it's funny because when we asked Jimmy to be the poetry editor, we had a very specific conversation with her about the most important thing is that it's good poetry. Like the the speculative elements can come and go to a certain extent, but the poetry itself has to be good at being poetry. That's our main metric. Um, And, you know, Michael was uh, in back in the day, he was a poetry editor for his college for his college magazine. And I have a you know, I have two degrees in literature. So it's not surprising that this is our point of view that, you know, as as a piece of poetry, it should be good poetry. Good is subjective, of course but it should have something to it that makes it good poetry. Um, And that was always sort of where we started with Uncanny, with the poetry that we selected when we were doing the poetry editing. And that was the same conversation we had with our first poetry editor, Julia Rios. It was, you know, it was very similar. We're always looking for just, you know, give us the good stuff. You know, that's what we want. We want crunchy things. We want... And actually, it's funny, Chimmy, that you were talking about sort of that third act twist, because that's something we look for in our short fiction, too. Um, One of our favorite things is when we get to the ending of a story and the ending is sudden but inevitable it it feels like it is sort of a twist but if you go back to the beginning of the story everything was there it was seated it was telegraphed it was completely and utterly inevitable but it was not the ending that you foresaw when you started reading the story like that's the kind of stuff that we get like giddy about as editors we're like yes we get so excited because, because we love to be surprised. I mean, the thing is, you know, we're not personally reading 2,000 stories that come in. This is, you know, in utter fairness, we have a wonderful team of first readers who help us out and narrow down the number of things that we are reading. But we are still reading when we are making our final decisions anywhere from two to 400 stories over the period of time that we're open and making decisions based on that. And the, the difference when we get to the top 50, you know, between, yes, this is going to stay with us and we're going to publish it in our top 20 to you know, 15 to 20 stories that we have the space to publish. And ooh, not quite is often that surprise element. It's often that elegance of, I did not see that coming, but it was so completely telegraphed and it was there all along. And we just we, we love that. I think it's because we're like fans of spy films and heist movies and things like that, as well as being nerds about science fiction. So like when you can surprise us in that way, it's very exciting. We love it. That's that's one of our favorite things. And, you know, in the same way that twists in stories that don't work that way can be disappointing you know that's often the difference between something that we end up selecting for publication and something that we don't is that we were like oh yeah that was the most likely choice that one would make with this narrative structure and this type of story that you're telling and that's fine but that's not quite what we were hoping for and so we would move on to the next thing in that case
1: because sean stole my poetry question (laughs) I'm going to steal what is essentially a a fiction question, but it's actually a little bit uh, wider than that, uh, which is... As of right now, Uncanny Magazine is a five-time Hugo winner and is nominated for this year's Hugos as well, which is also congratulations. Thank you. Because I think that you all do a lot of very good work and definitely earned all of those uh, rockets. But one of the things, as you had mentioned earlier, uh, Lynn, that like writers have picked up on a kind of vibe about mm-hmm. what Uncanny is about. And I'm kind of curious if you've ever given any thought to or discovered things about what that vibe is in terms of, outside of what an individual story does in order to be a good story. What are the kinds of things, in general, that draw you to a character or to a world or to a story when someone submits something to Uncanny? And you can be as, like, broad or as narrow about okay. that as possible because someone is going to listen to this and go, ah, these are the answers. And you don't necessarily have to give them the answers. But I'm kind of curious. Yeah. So
0: I think the first thing I should say is that don't use this as a checklist because it <laughs> because writing from a checklist doesn't work, honestly. Like, okay, there are parts of our aesthetic that I would hope are well, they seem obvious to us because we're living it, I guess. We think of uncanny as decidedly queer. We think of uncanny as often bittersweet, very engaged emotionally, and we think of Uncanny as a market that, that is focused on ways to make things better, large and small. So I think that's the other sort of part of our remit is that, you know, we are, we've been very clear from the get go that we're not a horror market. And part of the reason that we're not a horror market is because we are interested in, well, I should say we want art, period. That's the first (laughs) thing. Like to us, this is not just sci-fi, boom, boom, whiz, bang, bang, blow things up. We want art. Art. We are artsy fartsy people and we want it to be art. So that you can put it put that in the takey box. It needs to be art. We want it to be inclusive because we think that art is for everybody and we think that everybody can enjoy art and everybody should get to see themselves in art. And that's one of the reasons that we work hard to be inclusive in terms of what we publish, because we re- we recognize that art is not defined in the same ways in different traditions across the planet, and we want to be contributing to that as best that we can in terms of what we produce and put out into the world. I am someone who has not been particularly religious for most of my life, but has tried to live in terms of, have I made the world just this little inch better than it was yesterday? What can I do to make make that inch a little bit better? That's often been my approach to surviving in all of this. And uncanny is one of the ways that we do that. So we do tend to look for stories that are uplifting in some way. Now, uplifting can be different things. It doesn't have to be a, a happy ending. But we do look for things that are emotionally, emotionally powerful. I think that's the best way to phrase it. So it's not just, and everybody's very happy and we're all very shiny and there are unicorns and rainbows, ta-da. Often it's, we have faced the darkness and we survived, damn it. And that's enough. You know, often it's we have faced the darkness and we have lit a candle and we're going to make some progress, incremental though it might be. That, I think, is a lot of the ethos of what Uncanny tries for. And, you know, we won't always succeed. We won't always get it right. It's not possible to be perfect in the world. And the other part of our ethos that we are very committed to is that when we don't get it right, We try to make it better. We try to fix it. We try to make different mistakes the next time. And that's the other thing that I think is part of our approach. And that's one of the reasons why we emphasize community to the extent that we do, because we feel very strongly that, A, people want to feel like they belong to something. And... Um, that feeling of belonging is what makes us able to take care of one another in the world. And certainly now more than ever, that's deeply important to all of us. And I think that 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 feeling of community and taking care of one another is something where, you know, we have the sort of we've got the Space Unicorn Ranger Corps thing going on that sort of it's part of how we identify members of our community. But we also use it as a reminder of our own individual responsibility as members of that community to go out and try to do good things in the world. We understand, like, you know, everybody loves unicorns. It's one of the reasons that a space unicorn is our mascot, but unicorns have horns. And when things are going poorly, unicorns will defend themselves quite viciously. And so, you know, it's that thing of like, you know, the goal here is not to, to tear things down, but to build things up. And that's, I think, one of our key ethos things is that we're trying to build things up. We are the most sincere pumpkins in the pumpkin patch. If we're talking about Charlie Brown, uh, it's, it's you know, Happy Halloween, Charlie Brown. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. That is like, we are the most sincere pumpkins in the patch. That is us. My husband is Linus all day long. And I am Sally. Like, we watch Great Pumpkin every year and it, that's very much us sitting in the pumpkin patch. <laughs> Me complaining about missing out on trick-or-treat and him being devastated because the Great Pumpkin didn't come. That is us in a nutshell. Um, we are deeply sincere. We are also... People who believe in humor. We are part of the Muppets generation. Zany humor, dark humor. Like, you laugh at the darkness because that is a way that you survive it. And that is something that is also part of our ethos. We often have conversations where we will, when we're putting together issues, we will purposely place stories that are deeply uncomfortable that people need to sit with. Right next to what we lovingly refer to as a unicorn chaser of a story. Because we understand that it's important to sit with your discomfort and it's also important to find comfort because you would do a better job of sitting with that discomfort if you have a safe place to be. And sometimes the unicorn chaser story is what you need to do that. Good luck getting ticky boxes out of that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so multitudes
0: got it.
2: <laughs> I think a, a lot of what, I, what talking about the editorial process has sort of come, come down to this is that, It is a deeply subjective process and trying to look for objective
0: measures. There isn't one. Well, the thing is, I mean, fundamentally, becoming an editor, hanging out your shingle and saying, I am a tastemaker, is an act of hubris. What you're doing (laughs) is you are declaring that you think you have really excellent taste and that other people will want to read your taste because it's so good. That's what you're doing. But everyone has different taste. So the good news is that when you have... Ellen Datlow and Sheila Williams and Neil Clark and and lots of other folks who are editing out there, Sheree uh, Renee Thomas, like all of these folks have very different taste. which means that excellence is a much broader spectrum because a story that is going to knock Ellen Datlow's socks off or Sheree's socks may not knock my socks off and vice versa. There have been, you know, there have been stories that ended up not making it into Uncanny that went on to be published very happily in other markets and uh, and win awards in a couple of cases. And there are stories that have been rejected by other markets that came to us and had the same experience. I mean, it's it's very subjective. And there isn't a secret code. And I, I always feel bad because like every editing panel that I'm on at conventions, it's like, so what's the secret to getting published? And it's like, write really good stories and continue to send them to us. That's it.
2: Yeah, I feel like a lot of the, the rule here is persistence. It's just keep trying, keep trying, and keep going.
0: The late Jay Lake used to refer to it as psychotic persistence because it's a level of persistence in many cases that is not rational, but it's about believing in your work so strongly that you can't not put it out there.
2: Didn't he at one point, like he wrote a story almost every day yeah. for like an absurd amount of time? Yes.
0: Yes, he did. Not impossible. It's not impossible. I mean, he, you know, especially in the in the era of flash fiction as a thing, like that's it's possible. Yeah. But yeah, he did that. I mean, he also didn't watch television for like twenty five years. Like <laughs> oh. you know, he made yeah. choices.
2: Yeah, he made choices. Did he have yeah. Twitter? That's an important question. He did also. eventually have
3: Twitter. He did eventually
0: yeah. have Twitter. He had LiveJournal before Twitter. Yeah. Uh, huh. But
3: he, he published.
2: <laughs> he he wrote and he wrote and he wrote and he got rejection after rejection after rejection and eventually he got acceptances and he still got rejection and then he got more acceptances and still got rejection and then he got a bunch of novels published and still was getting rejected like it's
0: yeah it's just part of how it goes
2: Look, there's only one writer on this planet that isn't getting rejected for anything, and that's Stephen King, because it's just him, like, I have a lamp monster and his name's Fred, and that's the book, and they're like, sure, (laughs) here's a million dollars, I want to
1: believe in my heart of hearts that Stephen King has an unused room in his house somewhere that is just full of physically printed emails (laughs) of (laughs) millions of rejections that we will never see, because he's really just shotgunning stories in every direction, so... Stephen King, don't put me in our story because we said these things. <laughs> so, another thing, because in the world of short SFF, like, there's a sliding scale of things that people tend to like go out of their uh, way to appreciate, which I'm, I'm not being mean to readers by saying that at the very top is fiction, obviously. Sometimes at the very bottom tends to be uh, non-fiction, which I find is particularly interesting because I also think that Uncanny has some of the best essays in the genre. Uh, among the best essays in the genre. So I'm kind of curious to ask a twofold question, which is uh, one, uh, what was the impetus to include essays in Uncanny? And two, Uh, What do you think is the goal of those essays in the SFF space?
0: The impetus was that Michael and I both started our publishing careers as professionals doing nonfiction essays. My first book was an uh, essay book about Doctor Who called Chicks Dig Time Lords, which won a Hugo Award uh, in the best uh, best related work category, which is what best nonfiction used to be before it got broadened into more expansive definitions. So like we started in nonfiction and then kind of sidled into fiction uh, with the ability to move on to working at Apex. So nonfiction is sort of where we started and I'm an academic librarian in my day job and I, I write and occasionally edit nonfiction essays in academia as part of my day job. So the format is familiar. So- It seemed reasonable to us um, that if we were going to, you know, when we were trying to figure out what uncanny would be if we were in charge of a magazine and controlled everything, because that's where we started. You know, nonfiction seemed honestly like a no brainer to us because we were known for nonfiction. We were more known at that point for our nonfiction work, because I had done three nonfiction essay books at that point. Michael had done one. We'd only edited fiction at Apex for a couple of years, but we were far more well known for nonfiction editing. So we we were like, well, we have to have nonfiction. That's what people know us for. Um, so that was how it started. Uh and I would say that um in a general sense, we think of the essays in Uncanny as part of being in conversation with the genre and with the community. So sometimes they're very topical in terms of what's going on right now in the community at any given point in time or as topical as a bi-monthly magazine can be. Sometimes things go a little too fast and we can't actually, you know, grab onto that. Um, sometimes we are looking for sort of more memoiry kinds of things, um, thoughts about the past or the future of the genre, thoughts about things that get renewed or come back around. But really, it's just, you know, we think of Uncanny as trying to be the most interesting person at the cocktail party and that means having something for everyone so we want to have really awesome fiction that makes that that you know makes you laugh makes you cry makes you feel we want to have beautiful poetry that makes you think oh that's just so amazing you know that also makes you feel because poetry is also there to make you feel that's part of the point of it and we want essays that that feel thinky and crunchy and give you something to chat with people about um in part because in many cases especially in the early days of uncanny the most well known people who were writing for us were writing essays they weren't the fiction writers because we did we weren't established to a point where we had very well known fiction writers who were offering us content so but we could sometimes get a reasonably well known non a reasonably well-known fiction writer to write an essay because they had a rant that they'd been storing up for a while, and we were giving them a venue for it. So you know, you could you could occasionally put a nickel in somebody and be like, "So you want to talk about the Transformers movies, huh? Go, you know, because they had opinions. And for many fiction writers, it's nice to have a different outlet. It's one of the things we picked up from attending the Convergent Science Fiction Convention in the Twin Cities, which is actually going on this weekend. Um, we have been regulars there for years. And one of the things about it is that it's a multifaceted convention. It's it's literature, it's media, it's anime, it's comics. It's everything. Like everything nerdy in one roof with a whole crap ton of great parties in the before times when that was safe to do. The thing is, one of the best things we loved, one of the things we loved about going to conversions is one of their favorite things to do was to take their creative folks. So people who worked in television, people who worked in writing novels and short fiction and poetry and putting them on panels that had nothing to do with that, but that were about something that they were deeply passionate and nerdy about. So you would go to a panel about spy films and you would get you know scott lynch talking about his favorite spy films which isn't actually that much of a stretch if you've read the lies of luck lamora because well it's a heist novel so spy spy thrillers is not really that much of a stretch but um you could get shauna Maguire talking about her favorite disney properties or my little pony you could get Javi Griot Markswatch talking about his favorite books. So so what they did was they mixed folks and got them to talk about things that you would never expect to hear about. So you could have someone doing a really nerdy deep dive on, you know, cartoons from the 1980s that you never knew they watched, but that's how that person started writing is because they were obsessed with the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon from the 1980s. And that's why they started. Like, so you get these really great origin stories. But it's that cocktail party thing. It's that thing of like, you want to be multifaceted because your readers can come from lots of different places. And we want to have a little bit of something for as many people as possible. We have rants about baseball, you know, like we, you know, we have opinions about the history of professional wrestling. I have opinions about the history of dance. Like, We all have things in our lives that we are obsessed by that have nothing to do with our science fictional lives. And we think it's important to showcase all of those different facets of ourselves because we don't have to do only one thing. I don't have to choose. That's the whole point.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear you say that because now that means that when I finally write an essay about Kamen Rider, I can send it to Uncanny.
2: (laughs) Oh, God, just let him publish it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because he is so obsessed with Common Writer. Out of curiosity, uh, are we all on Team Undertaker? I know yeah. he's not, he's, he's retired as far as wrestling is concerned, but I, I want to make sure we're all on his team.
0: Well, we, we enjoyed him in WWE at the time, but we're more AEW fans these days. So we're not really following WWE as a promotion anymore, to be honest.
1: I don't blame you, you know, but I well, will also say mess. that Alexa Bliss is wild. If you Oh, yeah, we love her.
0: caitlyn has got one of her t shirts.
2: <laughs> nice. Okay, fair enough. That that tells you a lot about when was the last time I was watching professional wrestling was when the Undertaker was still relevant.
0: I mean, we we, we enjoyed a lot of his storytelling, you know, and and he he is a he is a legend in the genre and he mm-hmm. is someone who is a prime example of being able to do unexpected things with a story. That subvert your ex like he he's he spent his entire career subverting your expectations of of what a guy who was as big as he was could do in a wrestling ring because you look at him and you think he can't move that quickly and then he starts walking across the ropes and you're like whoa that's the whole point of him you know
2: yeah I love the Undertaker so much. <sighs> He was so great. And then his then Kane came. It was like a secret brother. Like, oh, it was the fire. Oh, it was so awesome. Yeah. And Paul Bearer, like, v- betrayed him. And, like, they shoved him in a coffin and he wasn't dead. And he came alive yep. again. Oh, so good. Oh, yep. man. Sounds like I should get into wrestling.
0: Yeah, it can be fascinating because it's very much an insight into simplified storytelling and what works and what does not. And the importance of pacing and building stories over time. hmm
1: Wrestling at its very best is some of the best storytelling that you will get, and it will yep. give you stuff like The Undertaker. Yeah. At its worst, it gives you the gobbledygooker.
0: Yes, or, or IRS. Mm. Kane's character, before he
1: became Kane, was a dentist. That's yeah, how no. bad wrestling can be at its worst.
0: And yet, the top one of the top wrestlers in AEW is an actual dentist. That's her gimmick, and it's her profession. Nice. She's in the women's division. Her name is Britt Baker. She is their top draw in the women's division, and amongst the top draws in the company. And her shtick is that she's a dentist who became a professional wrestler.
1: <laughs>
3: She'll knock the teeth out of you and put them back.
1: I'm into <laughs> that. I guess I need to start the AEW now. I was <laughs> one- I was watching WWE out of spite, but now you've given me a thing I might actually enjoy.
0: (laughs) The thing I love about AEW, I'm such a stan at this point, um, but the thing I love about AEW as a promotion is that it has all of the things about WWE that we enjoyed in terms of storytelling and none of the things that irritated the heck out of us. I can get through an entire episode of AEW and bell to bell, the wrestling is really, really solid. The storytelling is really, really solid. All of the bookings make sense and they take time to build them properly. And on top of it, I am very rarely punched in the face in terms of things like misogyny and racism and ableism and sexism. Those are things that I don't have to encounter in AEW on a regular basis because they are not routinely incorporated into their storylines. Which I can't always say is true of WWE. So that unfortunately, yeah,
1: duly noted. One of these days we're gonna we're gonna uh, bring you back here just to have like a whole conversation just about wrestling, but not yet. <laughs> At this point, I feel like it would be a responsible question to ask about the Kickstarter, since the Kickstarter is live at this moment, and people have the opportunity to help Uncanny continue to do Uncanny work. So is there anything that you'd like to say about the Kickstarter right now? And I'll start with uh, Chimmy, because I'd like to hear from you in particular, since this is... Especially since uh, you are a, a new member of the Uncanny team, I feel like it would be first it it would be best to open with you and like get a sense sure. of how the kickstarter is going what your hopes for the kickstarter are and so on
3: yeah um well the kickstarter is grow- going pretty well um it's always exciting to see like people get super super hyped on the first day and then actually still maintain that momentum and that's very much been happening like last year i thought we funded so fast and this year we funded slightly faster so i'm like ooh that's very exciting. I love having a job for another year. That's very exciting to me. But yeah, I guess in terms of hopes, I mean, I hope we hit all of our stretch goals. (laughs) Because as usual, there, you know, there are goals that go beyond just funding the magazine for another year. It's also like making the magazine better, making it get to do things that Maybe it hasn't gotten to do before, stuff like that. Yeah, my hope is basically that uh, everyone maintains their energy. And we have, like, a lot of really cool backer levels. Like, you can get signed books, and you can get a poetry critique from me. If I wasn't part of the team, I would definitely be putting my name down for some of the very fancy rewards. To distill it down to one specific thing, my hope for the Kickstarter is... Let me live vicariously through you, the uncanny supporter. Choose a really cool backer level and just go all out and tell all your friends and be like, hey, I'm supporting a really cool speculative fiction magazine. Um, just because like, it's, woo, it's been a wild year and a half, two years, I guess. Um, I, I don't know if anyone has heard, but there's been a bit of a pandemic. So that's been really interesting, I think, for just everyone's uh, mental health. Like from editors to writers to agents to cover artists to anyone who's working in publishing or any industry at all, it's been rough. So I- I'm just really glad we got to do this for another year. Hopefully, a less pandemic year. Uh, it's funny when I started with Uncanny as the managing editor. At least my term started like 2019 fall of and so like very quickly on uh it was pandemic time it's I, I would love to see what kind of editor i would be in a less pandemicy space um so support us so support us and get vaccinated and wear masks if you can't yes. get vaccinated uh so that i can achieve my dreams <laughs> if you won't do it for yourself or for the <laughs> G- planet for you. <laughs> do it for me specifically <laughs> you haven't met me but it's it's okay Yes, please please support uh the Kickstarter. Uh look at backer levels that you think would benefit you in a fun and cool way. And yeah, support Kickstarters in general of magazines. Uh subscribe, etc. Again, the (laughs) the short fiction the short SS uh, short SFF field is expanding in a really cool way. Like a lot of new magazines have launched uh like last year and this year. Uh, which have been like Mermaids Monthly launched, Deadlands launched, Constellation. Constellation. Yeah, right. So there's like, there's a ton of magazines happening. Uh, and I think that it's just a richer space for writers and for editors, if we're all able to support all of these magazines. And it doesn't have to be like a $500 subscription (laughs) donation to the magazine. But if you have $500 to spare and you really want to send it to Uncanny, I would never stop you.
2: Well, there is, in fact, a $400 level option. Mm
3: -hmm. Yes.
2: But if you want to go above and beyond. But you can go above (laughs) and beyond. And and I will say that there are some pretty cool, if you've got a a bit of money to to toss down, there's um, Chris Kluwe will be doing a, a tabletop gaming session. There is an Uncanny team Trivia uh, random pursuit trivia game that would be run by Erica Ensign. Uh there will be, you know, there's obviously the book, the more traditional stuff like you can get a, a full year subscription as one of them or you can get just one issue. There's books, there's signings, there's uh, Jeanette Ng will be will do uh, like a, a micro fiction postcard for you, which I, I missed when I backed it, so I uh, might have to change my life a bit uh, because that sounds utterly delightful. So there's tons of cool stuff is really what I'm saying. And there's probably something for everybody, which means that if you've got money and you can put it down, go for it.
3: Plus, there's also add-ons that happen as we achieve more and more of our stretch goals. So like, if you don't see anything now, you might see something later.
0: Yeah, there, there are a good strong handful of backer levels that um, will be coming as new options in the next couple of weeks. We, we try to sort of break it up a little bit so that it's not everything at once because we want people to continue to get excited about the things that we have to offer, obviously.
2: Right. But there's also lovely stretch goals, which you've met a couple of them already, at least at the time of this recording, uh, which includes some original cover art. There's uh, an increasing of pay-to-pay pay submission editors. There's also a level for flash fiction uh, to be added to every issue of next year, which is, just means more. You get even more for your $26 subscription. Just saying, it's $26. It's not that expensive. You can afford to
1: do it. It's actually quite a steal when you really think about it.
2: Honestly, yeah, it's a little bit. It's a, I kind of feel a little guilty, but not that guilty. <laughs> so... <laughs>
1: And of course, also worth mentioning to all of the writers who are probably listening to this as well, is the very obvious fact that uh, short manuscript critiques are one of the backer levels as well. So this is also an opportunity to get established folks to look at your work and like give you notes. So if you've ever wanted to not only have cool things to read and have a place to submit very, very soon, but also have people look at your work and say hey this is the things that i've seen about your work and there are some places where you can improve those are things that you can do
2: well i think we've made it nice
1: yay good job team <laughs> <laughs>
2: The best way to find the Kickstarter would be go to the show notes for this or go to like Uncanny's Twitter account would probably be the other way. Or you can go to Kickstarter and just search Uncanny Magazine and it will come up. But for our lovely guests, if you wouldn't mind letting folks know where they can find you and your your other things that you do that aren't necessarily Uncanny, if you have been to want to share them. uh, We'll start with Lynn. Where can folks find you?
0: Well, you can find me blathering on about not only Uncanny, but also Librarian Land stuff, because I'm a librarian in my day job. Um, You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Lynn M. Thomas. So you do need to spell it right and include the E in my first name. That's usually the thing that confuses people, because if they don't add the E, then they won't find me. But I'm there. I'm... You know, somewhat chatty, I I will point out that that one of the things that is a tradition for uncanny Kickstarters is that there's a lot of older science fiction films that I have never seen. And one of the things that we do to support the Kickstarter each year to try to get people excited and to do something a little bit fun and entertaining is that I will periodically live tweet my first viewing of things I have never seen before. We have done this with films that have varying levels of quality and joy in them it's been very popular as a feature of our Kickstarters and there will invariably be some sort of live tweet. We haven't determined what they are. We haven't picked the films yet. Usually I find out when Michael tweets about what I'm going to watch in live (laughs) tweet. And I'm like, wait, what am I doing? Um, But we will set, but if you watch my Twitter and the uncanny Twitter and Michael's Twitter, You'll you'll find out when we're going to do that. It typically happens in the evening in Central Time, so usually like 8 p.m. Central Time ish. We'll put on a movie. We'll tell you when we're going to start, and we'll live tweet the whole thing. We had we have have a lot of fun doing it, and it has been a great way to expand my education in science fiction film because I didn't grow up watching a lot of SF films. So a lot of the classics, and particularly the cult classics, and the things that are deeply beloved, but not necessarily known as high quality um, are the things that I get to watch during the Kickstarter. So that's always great fun.
3: Well, perfect. And then Chimmy, where can folks find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter for the next month, because when the Kickstarter ends, I will be going back on hiatus. So you can find me on Twitter. It's under my full name, Chimmy Du Mahebu, which I guess I can spell it, but also you can find me on Uncanny's like main staff page as well uh and i have a website so if you want to find like my writing or my writing about writing or more likely what i'm not writing which is a lot of the time uh you can go to chimedoom.com. so uh you can find me vaguely on the internet uh i guess is the the i'm like the ghost in the machine
2: (laughs) oh oh that's Mm -hmm. dark okay is it You're (laughs) you're hiding in all our machines as a ghost oh i wouldn't say hiding
3: i would say hanging out
2: Hanging out. Oh, but well, I guess that's not so dark. You're like you're like Casper. You're like a friendly <laughs> yeah, exactly. guest. you f- Yeah, I got it. Okay. I'm the friend in the machine. <laughs> nice. Awesome.
1: As for you, delightful listeners, if you'd like to let us know what you thought about this episode, please head on over to Skiffianfanti.com slash listener suggestions. Also Follow us at Skiffy and Fanti on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to our newsletter at skiffyandfante.com slash newsletter. And finally, if you like the things that you heard in your ears this evening, uh, please support us at patreon.com slash Fanti because we're trying to do some really cool things, and uh, we would definitely need the support for those things to happen. Um, one of the things we're definitely looking to do for uh, future uh, Skiffy and Fanty content is transcriptions. So if you can support us in that goal, it would be very, very cool. So Patreon. Slash Skiffy and Fanti. And please give us some love on iTunes. Please a five star review if you love the things that you're hearing. It would help us out a lot, please. So you can find me at The Rising tithes on Twitter, Brandon O'Brien. Space, and on Speculate, where I currently GM The Case of the Sinded Seal, a Blades in the Dark actual play, at SpeculateSF.com.
2: And you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, SeanDuke.net, or patreon.com slash The Joy Factory. And now it is my job to make this super awkward. So this is the moment when I reveal that all along I have been a professional wrestler by the ya- name of Yanto.
1: Yanto. And what is your gimmick?
2: <laughs> I fly in on a giant rubber ducky.
1: Ooh. You know, that's actually rad. That's, that, that actually works. Like on a scale of one to five, Lynn. I'm a rubber ducky.
0: A rubber ducky.
2: Giant. It's a giant
1: rubber
0: giant ducky. Giant rubber ducky. Okay, giant rub- <laughs> so you're a comedy wrestler.
2: Yeah, but I'm I'm sort of like imagine if you took yeah, the Batman Returns and you took Danny DeVito right, as the gotcha. Penguin, but made him less gross.
0: Okay, yep. Yeah, <laughs> that's yep. me. I could see that working. Yeah, yeah, yeah Absolutely. Yeah. Does the ducky get involved in the matches though? That's the big question.
2: Yes, I beat people with it.
0: Okay, all good and then. then.
2: I put them inside it, and then I cl- I drag them out inside my giant rubber. All ducky, right, and then deposit them in my in my duck pond that I have been taking care of. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> Is your Rabadaki so. sentient? Do you speak to the Rabadaki? Yes, of course I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of this, I'd love to see this in a pay per view. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> on Not that note, folks, awkward ending and C. <laughs>
2: If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash Thank you for listening.